0: Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Dr. Adi Jaffe. He's a PhD, a world-renowned expert on mental health, addiction, relationships, and shame. That's right, shame. People are going to talk about that today. He was a UCLA lecturer in the psychology department at UCLA for the better part of a decade and was the executive director and co-founder of one of the most progressive mental health treatment facilities in the country until he started IGNITED, IGNTD, that's right, that's how we spelling it, people, a smart, personalized, adaptive recovery system. Dr. Jaffe's work and research focus on changing the way people think about and deal with mental health issues. He is passionate about the role of shame in destroying lives and aims to greatly reduce the stigma of mental health in this country. In this context, Dr. Jaffe has used his personal experiences as an incredibly effective inspirational and motivational tool. Welcome, Dr. Jaffe.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Leo.
0: I appreciate you being here, man. Now, you know, at the the tail end of this, you know, uh as as I shared in the in the intro, like you use your personal experiences as an effective and inspirational tool. What's your personal experience with
1: shame and addiction? Mm. I mean, you know, my personal experience with shame more, runs much longer than my personal experience with addiction. Um, I didn't know it and I had no language to give to it at the time. But I've been one of those kids who was worried about what everybody thought of him and thinking that he didn't fit in and thinking that other people were pretending to like him and just all this incessant noise in my head. I mean, this is going to sound a little weird, but really from the time I was eight, nine or 10 years old. um, And, you know, now as an adult and having talked about this for, you know, the better part of 20, 30 years, I have some insight as to why that is and why during that time period and all this other stuff. But I carried that weight from that age, at least until I was 14, 15, before I found Drugs and alcohol that then gave me relief from that shame, and then I was off to the races, man. When somebody, when somebody introduced me to a, essentially a tool, right, like a medicine that made me stop feeling that crappy about myself, um, I didn't look back. So, talk
0: to me about this this tool that helped you uh, to cope with
1: the shame. Yeah. Um, well, so I was 14 years old. Um, I grew up in Israel and literally in the same apartment, my entire life didn't move an inch. My elementary school was behind our house. Um, then when I went to junior high, it was like a seven minute walk again with all my friends from elementary school. So I, I was around all the same people really since I was, you know, four five, six years old and, um, had a lot of friends, but still, still like, Never felt like I was cool enough. Never felt like I looked good enough. It was the num- the number of things I didn't feel like I was enough on would be enough to fill this entire show. So I'll, I'll move on from the details. But I was feeling that way already in Israel with all my friends. And then at 14, we moved to the States. Uh, we moved from Tel Aviv to a suburb of Chicago. And I knew nobody. I spoke English, but I was the foreign kid with a weird accent who didn't speak it really well. And now I really was kind of relegated to in my mind, at least. And then, you know, also in terms of my social status or the friends I had to like this outsider group. And I, you know, now I had even more proof that I wasn't fitting in. And so I had this little group of friends of Israeli, other Israeli, uh, either transplants or people whose parents were Israeli. And we went away to the sleepaway camp. And it was in Jersey, actually. So I'm in Chicago, but the sleepaway camp is in Jersey. And it was uh, essentially the Boy and Girl Scouts for Israel. And they had an annual meeting. I'm sure they still have it. Maybe not during COVID. But sleepaway camp all over the country. We're meeting all these people. My friends from Chicago are there. And at the end of, I think it was the first or the second night, we hung out in one of the cabins, right? The boys and girls weren't supposed to mix. But of course, we did. We're 14, 15 years old. And as we're hanging out, and I'm, you know, trying to do my best to fit in, somebody starts passing around a handle of vodka, and um, I'd heard about drinking. I've probably tasted wine a couple of times, but I never really drank until this moment. But you know, I don't think I'm exactly the coolest cat. So when it gets to me, the last thing on earth I was even thinking of doing is saying no. Obviously, I'm going to take it and try to pretend to be like everybody else. It looked like everybody was drinking to me. So take a couple of swigs of warm straight vodka from a handle which is if anybody listening has ever done that before is one of the most disgusting things you can do i mean this stuff tastes terrible it's burning my esophagus going down i i kind of feel like i maybe want to throw up a little bit but i'm obviously trying to not to do that cuz there's all these kids so i take maybe even another one or two swigs and i did it just to fit in but then 15 minutes later maybe 20 maybe 12 i have this warm feeling come over me And I'm good. Like, what do I mean by good? For the first time that I can remember ever in my history, there's no concern and worry about what are other people thinking of me? Is anybody talking about me? Am I cool enough? Am I anything? It just, the noise gets lowered and I can just kind of hang out with people. That was like a revelation to me. I didn't even know something like that could exist. And so for the rest of that weekend, I kept drinking. I just found exactly the thing that fixed the noise in my head that I didn't even know to give a name to until that moment. So we leave that sleepaway camp. You know, the friends of mine from Chicago and I all head back to Chicago. And almost every weekend after that, those friends, they'd already been having drinking parties. I just wasn't invited because I wasn't one of the cool kids, but now I was drinking. So it worked. It made me one of the cooler kids. I got to hang out with other kids who were drinking. I felt better while I was drinking with them. And so I started drinking every opportunity. And then two years later, the pretty much almost the exact same thing happened with weed, with the one difference being it wasn't a guy who had me a joint. It was this girl I really liked in class and um, started smoking weed. And so by 16, I'm smoking weed and drinking. By 18, 18 and a half by the time I'm going to college, I'm smoking and drinking every day. And really, if I'm honest about it, really heavily on the weekends with alcohol and weed is just kind of throughout the day. I'm smoking in the morning. I'm smoking in the afternoon. I'm smoking in the evening and I was just a stoner. Um, And so that, that just became the rule for me. And that was a normal everyday life that wasn't even under extreme stress. So when things happen and obviously they do in life, those tools, because they managed allowing me to just feel normal, they weren't enough and I had to go even harder than that. Did your parents drink? Um, My dad didn't really drink like he would have a a drink or two a year. Um, My mom drank not excessively, though. She would drink. I mean, I definitely remember we'd been in some weddings and uh, my mom would have one too many and I could kind of tell when she would go to get up that she would kind of stumble, but it wasn't a regular thing by any stretch. Not at home, not on a daily basis. My mom has this rule. She doesn't drink alone. So um, that never really happened at home ever. And I, I heard from my mom that my grandfather was the word she used essentially was an alcoholic when I was a kid. But I never really met my grandpa. So I didn't really see that ever active. I don't think my dad ever touched weed in his life. He was just that kind of guy. But I'm pretty sure my mom, I should, man, I should just ask her at this point. I'm 44 years old. I can ask her whatever I want at this point. Um, I'm, per, you know, she was a child of the 70s. I'm as close to 100% sure as I can without asking her directly right now that she smoked a bunch of weed when she was in, you know, high school and military and things like that.
0: So I'm asking because, you know, you talked about as a kid, you know, not feeling like you were enough. You know that that feeling of inadequacy. Yeah. Uh, that uh, you know a, a lot of a lot of kids experience at, at a young age. It's, it's like either you're not tall enough, you're not cool enough, you're not uh, smart enough. Um, and you know, did you feel like you could talk to your parents about anything mm. that was going on for you internally or emotionally? Or you know, the Israel. I don't I don't know what the Israeli culture is like. You know, I just know sure. Gal Gadot. You know.
1: Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I don't know Gaul, by the way. Uh, but look, Israel is a little tough around the edges. Everybody knows that, right? The our national fruit is the prickly pear. Like the, the what you call in Israeli is, is like a sabres, which is literally the the word for a prickly pear. And so and the analogy holds. Right. It's kind of tough and prickly on the outside. And uh, you most of us can't get into the inside unless you wear really, really thick gloves. I think that uh, that applies to most Israelis. And the same applied to me, if I'm honest. Right. My dad was Scandinavian, Swedish and Norwegian. I don't know if you've ever run across any Scandinavian people. They are not highly emotional. Um, not at
0: all. Oh, no. So very
1: stoic. Very, very stoic. Um, Even, you know, in Sweden, there are a couple of different elements of this to play in. So definitely not high shows of emotion. Also, they're tough and right. They're like Vikings. So um, part of the idea is just do the work you got to do to get through what needs to be done and shut up about it. And then the other thing is they're very big on not boasting and not really showing off at all. So you don't talk about yourself in any way, really not about your bad emotions because those aren't to be discussed and not about the good stuff. So emotions were really not happening in my family at all. My mom was the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. My grandmother's half of her family uh, didn't make it out of Poland when she was a kid. And so they perished in the, in the Holocaust. And so that's a different kind of emotional turmoil, right? That's a traumatized family that doesn't really talk about much at all. And, um, you know really just worries my grandmother was always worried and and I totally get it right when you're a kid and you think life is normal and then all of a sudden literally the universe gets ripped out from under you you never assume that anything is safe ever for the rest of your life and that's how my grandmother lived so that's that was the framework i was in i was also a latchkey kid both my parents worked all the time and so i had literally that key around my neck and i would just go home uh, after school by myself but to add all that I got to say, I didn't even know until much later in life that there was stuff to talk about. And I don't know. My parents didn't give me the vocabulary, so that's probably part of the reason. But nobody else did either. Nobody at school talked about, hey, you're going to have emotions and sometimes you're going to feel like you don't fit in or you're going to have a hard time or kids are going to bully you and you're going to feel weird. Those were just not phrases that were uttered anywhere around me, not just at home. Wow. So you have
0: one parent who is stoic and just like, you know, grin and bear it and, and you know, uh, embrace the suck. And the other parent who's, you know, Grant lost their parents and, and her family in a Holocaust. And so I would imagine that you're you're also having a feeling like, well, I'm not going through what they've been through. So what am I really complaining about?
1: Yeah. And also my dad. So my dad was very high achieving and that was what was held up always as making him successful. Now, by the way, he worked. I have a hard time estimating the hours, right? Cause I was a kid when we were living in Israel. So he was just never home is all I knew. He wasn't home when I would wake up, he was already gone and he wouldn't be home yet when I would fall asleep. He was also in the military and active duty. So that meant that once a month at a minimum, he was gone the entire weekend. Um, And so I really saw him two to three days a week, mostly Saturday mornings before he would have to either go into work or go catch up with other things. I never really saw him much until I was 14 and we moved to the States. Um, And yeah, I mean, there was no modeling of emotion at all, if I'm honest, like getting things done, completing tasks, being good at what you're doing. Those were the things that were lauded and uh, and esteemed in my family
0: accomplishment achievement it just it's all about about the check marks done 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 and done versus feeling being
1: uh grounding kind of thing yeah uh a story we tell now you know my wife and i have three kids now and so when we had our first kid now i was at least a little more emotionally intelligent by the time i was you know in my early 30s and so I remember telling my wife how weird it felt to say, I love you in Hebrew. I speak Hebrew to my kids. How weird it felt to say, I love you to my kids in Hebrew, because in our family, nobody said it to this day. Nobody says it. Um, you know, I say it to my mom, actually I say it to my sister, my sister says it back to me. So parents don't say it. And it doesn't like, I can say it to my mom. She just won't say it back. And, um, and it's not because she doesn't love me. It's literally like not part of her lexicon. It's just not part of the, Vocabulary she attributes to communication between people, um, and that that is a weird, bizarre reality. You know, I, I deal with a lot of clients now who come from similar, not backgrounds, but similar um, histories in terms of emotional vocabulary and intelligence and, and modeling growing up, and whether you like it or not, when you have to build it from your own sort of reservoir of motivation in your 30s 40s 50s not only is it harder but it doesn't become as innate right it doesn't become as automatic as when you learned it when you were five so true man and you know what's interesting is
0: when i think about your parents um you know your dad being stoic and your mom you know having parents who are um you know, in a Holocaust. And uh, I I could see why they got together because I would Mm. imagine it was so emotional. It was such an emotional experience for your mom. And then she meets your dad who is no emotion. So now she doesn't have to Mm. worry about, you know, she doesn't have to tap into that part of herself.
1: Yeah, I could could see that. I mean, you know, the thing is in Israel, most people, I, I shouldn't say most people, a lot of people in Israel, are emotive and it might be it comes off as aggressive to a lot of people outside of israel or who are not but it's like i don't know we always can get compared to like italians italians are very passionate right and so they talk with their hands and they're very emotive and their volume goes up when they're talking to you and it can feel like a lot Um, and that's what you get used to in israel with most people but in my family I mean everything the volume the the level of excitement was kept down unless things were really bad and then there was yelling but that was that was it so kind of like stoicism or you know moderate to non-existent emotional expression or shit hit the fan we're angry right like those were the the two states i saw
0: got it and you know you, you mentioned your wife and uh i know you have three kids yeah. how you know not having an emotional vocabulary from at a young age how did you develop that and and <laughs> well, uh, two so two questions one is how did you develop the emotional vocabulary because and it, it's so hard for a lot of us who grew up in uh similar households where you know emotions just weren't talked about and then the other part is, um, I, I forgot what the other part I, I was I was going to mention. But let's talk about that part.
1: Yeah, first. I mean, right. I'll okay. Look, I'll tell you. The first part is, um, with a lot of difficulty. <laughs> um, you know, so one of the realities is that. it had to come to a place where things weren't working out where I was running into serious problems in particular with my, uh, with my wife, um, that really landed us almost ending our relationship. And it took that much for me to go, Oh crap. I gotta, I gotta reconfigure this. I, I, there's something I'm missing. There's something I'm missing here. And, um, And it was, am I going to be able to save this marriage? Am I going to be able to rescue this? And there was a lot of turmoil. Like I cheated on my, she was my girlfriend at the time because I couldn't talk to her about what was wrong in the relationship. And so I came up with a dumb, rationalized way of quote unquote, fixing the problem, which was to go look for what I wasn't getting in the relationship somewhere else, but. It didn't it didn't help. It didn't do anything. It actually just made our relationship more strained. And so um, I had, I confessed. I had to confess to her about it. My dad cheated on my mom, too. So it was a very come to Jesus kind of moment for me in terms of like, oh, crap, I had my I hated my dad for 20 years for this. Now I just did it myself. Um, and yeah, she broke up with me. We were broken up for a year. And one of the conditions when we got back together was we got to go to therapy. And, um, you know, when you go to a therapist with your partner and you have to talk about things, you're either not going to show up and you're just going to not be able to discuss, or you're going to start digging. So I found something, if there's anybody listening right now, one of the tools that really helped me with this, and it wasn't our first therapist that discovered this first, it actually took me almost a decade to find this thing, but um, there's this thing called the feelings wheel. Uh, And this is literally what I mean by creating an emotional vocabulary. The feeling's real. I have it as the background of my uh, laptop, so I can literally look at it right now as we're speaking. And it has a center, which is sort of the emotional um, palette that I was working with when I started. You can be happy. Uh, maybe you can be sad. Angry. Like I said, that was big in my family. Fearful. I was not even con- comfortable with that one. Disgusted. Sure. You know, if I ate something disgusting or I saw something that was disgusting. Surprised. Those are the emotions in the center. And most of the people that I work with, or a lot of the people I work with, that's where they start, you know, five words, maybe to describe their emotional state. And for a lot of men like me, and this is, I know, a very heteronormative conversation I'm about to have here, but for a lot of men like me, so you can stick any gender, any human, but I I see this in a lot of the men that I work with. um, This comes out when they and their partner are having a conversation. The partner says, how's your day? And they go, good. And that's it. And their partner goes, I need, give me more. Like, why don't you talk to me? Why don't you let me in? I just had no other words. It was good. What do you want? Right. But then the second and the third layers of this uh, feelings wheel, and people should really just pull this thing up. We have it on ignited. If you go to ignited.com forward slash feelings wheel, you can have a version of it. Words like playful, proud, lonely, bitter, disappointed, hostile, Persecuted, inadequate, um, rushed, astonished. We know all the words, right? The vocabulary is not complicated. But before I started looking at this thing, I had never said to anybody that I felt resentful or disrespected or curious or, man, I really felt respected and admired today. Like that was, those conversations never happened because I didn't have the words. And because I didn't have the words for the good things, I didn't have the words for the bad things, when they would come up, I just didn't know how to deal with it, right? It's, it's literally like being colorblind or blind in the world of sight. And so when my wife, my girlfriend, Tom, would ask me to talk about things, I didn't have a way to do it. So I had to do a lot of work, a lot of work, therapy, groups, accountability groups, uh, couples groups that Sophie, that Sophie and I went to together. And then I would see it modeled in other people. I would learn tools myself. I would practice. I would stumble. And eventually, and to this day, I'm improving on it. But eventually what would happen is I could send a text to my wife saying, hey, when we talked earlier, um, that made me feel really frustrated because I got scared based on what you were seeing. And I got insecure about the relationship. So can we talk about this later? And I didn't come from a place where talking about that happened. So I never seen it occur before. I didn't know how to do it, if that makes sense.
0: Man, we about to go deep. I love everything you just shared, man. And you know, what was, what stood out to me um, is the fact that when you took that first sip of vodka, what you mentioned was how you were good. Yeah, You were like, man, that was the first time I was good. Yeah. Right. That's how you used to describe it. And and now you evolved to a place where you're recognizing good is not deep enough. It's not even an emotion. It's not
1: even on the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't good. And in reality, also, it wasn't that I was good. That's what it felt like. What it was, was. um. What it was, was a quieting of the reminders of all the ways in which I wasn't good. You know, so all that stuff was still existing. I didn't fix any of the inadequacies. I didn't fix any of the ways in which I felt less than I wasn't repairing any of the relationships. I wasn't getting closer to anybody in my life. I just didn't care about it as much. And A, because I didn't know any better B because I, um, you know, i uh i don't know how to even say this i i didn't understand i didn't understand the difference between putting a band-aid on the inadequacies and putting a band-aid on the ways in which i felt less than and actually addressing the core issues that underlie them so that they're literally not a problem anymore those are two completely different realities and all i cared about was the pain i was getting so i didn't I didn't know what the difference was. All
0: right, we got to run this back because my, my, all the dopamine just released in my brain when you mm. said being good was just the quieting of the reminders of all the ways I wasn't good, of all the ways I felt inadequate. It's a powerful statement. Hmm. and i i i want to marinate in that for a second because uh there's so many of us who describe ourselves as being good or i'm good it was a good day and we don't realize what we're really saying hmm. like that's so specific that, that really drilled in to I, I know at least for me for what i feel you know i'm a i struggle with sugar uh, yep. i go i go to i go to foods uh you know as my way of quieting the reminders of mm. of uh, my inadequacies my hurts my pains and uh and you know for and i know for you also it was uh porn
1: porn strippers meth coke ecstasy i mean i would use anything i could man it wasn't i was an equal opportunity user i'll, I'll say but the main point was, I just didn't want to feel in pain. And anything that would take away the pain was, uh, was good. But I think, look, the name of this is before you kid yourself, right. Um, And I think, I think for me, where the rubber meets the road in the end is OK, I'm going to get deep and I might make some mistakes. So please correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm if I don't if I'm not speaking from the perspective that you bring to this to some extent. Okay? Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. First of all, we all struggle. Let's just get that out there. Right. There is not a single human being, you know, I just gave a talk in a college and I made this point to these freshmen that were just coming into to, to um, you know, their freshman orientation. And I said, look, I don't care how cool the quarterback is. How amazingly put together that girl you think has it all together is the person sitting right next to you in class, the teacher, everybody you see in front of you is going through something. All of us don't let anybody fool you by putting on a really nice act. And the reason I'm saying that is I need you to understand your struggles are not unique and they're unique in the, the experience you're having, but they're not isolated, everybody is having struggles in this moment right now. The difference and the reason why some of us ever consider taking our lives and some people actually try it or go through with it fully is in my belief, two, two Um, One, it's going to be like this forever and I'm never going to have a way out. And two, I'm the only one and nobody is this bad. And if I share this with other people, they will finally understand and know how terrible I am deep inside. And they will all leave me already anyway. And so they're actually better off without me here because I'm actually relieving them of how terrible a human being I am. Um, and I feel like for at least a lot of people, those are the variants. And so there's two things folded in there. First of all, the notion that there is no hope, right? Hopelessness. You're, you're going to be in this in this state forever. And secondly, that you're isolated and feeling this way. And so for me, you know, Sophie and I preach this concept of radical transparency, and you don't have to do it with everybody. But when you start sharing with everyone, really what's happening to you without them having to ask. So like when somebody says, hey, how are you doing? To feel comfortable saying, actually, I'm having a really shitty week, to be honest. um, Really, really shitty week. You may not have asked the question to dive more deeply into it, but I don't want to lie to you and tell you I'm all good. Having a really shitty week. Um, You actually open up an opportunity to be honest and connect deeply with the people around you instead of perpetrating what I think is the biggest lie that, that has been perpetrated on all of us, which is our job is to pretend to be good, okay, and quote unquote, normal all the time. And it's that Internal desire we have to look normal that makes us not share our pain, which makes the people around us not share their pain because we look like we got it all together. So we must be better than they are. So they don't share their pain with us. We don't share our pain with them. We've got a room full of people, literally, like I had like 400 college students in a room shaking their head as I was saying this. We got 400 people in the room, all of you pretending to be fine to everybody else around here, and not a single one of you is 100% fine. Stop it. Just stop doing it. Start talking to people about what's really going on with you. Share openly your struggles, not just when you're winning, because by only sharing your wins, you're setting yourself up for failure and the people around you.
0: Man, I love that. And it's true. We, we all got a little something going on. And you know, one of the things that, uh, I, I ask Michelle on a daily basis is, you know, what was your biggest challenge today? And yeah. and this is a question I ask not only of her, but I like to ask, you know, uh, just people that I meet, people who I because mm. what happens is we meet people who they give off this energy, right? Because yeah. we're, we're so practiced at, uh, you know, masking what's really going on, or our vulnerabilities th- of, of having it all together, of uh, you know, firing on all cylinders of just I'm crushing it. Uh, no days <laughs> off, you know, it. David Goggins kind of, you know, yeah. mindset. And, and, and when I meet those people, I admit, I feel inadequate. I feel intimidated. Yeah. And one of the ways I found to chip away at it is to ask them, so what's your biggest challenge right now? Mm. And I've like never put it front and center. It, put, it puts it front and center because I've never ask that question and one had them not answer it be like wait how dare you two they've never not had an answer
1: yeah like nobody's ever gone you know what Ashley, man i've got no struggles
0: even jeff bezos is trying to figure something out right now
1: i mean jeff bezos entire world blew up about a year and a half ago so (laughs) two years ago whatever so yeah he's trying to figure a lot of shit out but by the way, I think by the way, I think that's there's there's a there's a lesson in there. I know you're kind of saying it half jokingly, but the lesson is and I've I've been blessed never worked with Jeff just to be very clear as I say this, but um I've been incredibly blessed to work with some amazing people. Not like kind of amazing people, amazing people, right? People who have the rest of us look at them and we're like, "Holy hell, if I could only be half the person this man, woman, anything is, right?" Um I got a secret for you all. That's not the answer. It doesn't get you everything you think you want. And so, I think there's magic in that. I think there's a there's a release, at least for me, that happened in knowing that. And that is, oh, so look, cars cars are nice. Cars are amazing. Um, but planes are nice. Having a billion dollars in the bank, I'm sure, is nice for people. I don't know. I've I've never experienced that but they don't make you feel better about yourself, right? They don't solve that void. They don't fill it. They don't They don't create happiness. If you're happy and you know it, no, I'm just kidding. If you're happy and you have that wealth, I'm sure it makes life much more exciting. But if you're really struggling on a deep level, those things don't fix it. And I think a lot of people believe that they will. So they pursued that as the, as the solution where what they're really searching for is happiness. Again, being in a private jet is really nice, but it, if, if it doesn't actually deliver happiness, then why are you chasing it? Unless you've already found happiness. Hmm.
0: It's so true. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've discovered for myself is I don't even care about being happy. Hmm. I, I I thought I wanted to be happy because everybody said be happy don't you know there's that song don't worry be happy and <laughs> I so I like that song I know, like the
1: movie I like the song I like the Yeah
0: movie. right the vibe I mean anything with a little reggae a little caribbean yeah. vibe to it let's go hmm. and um but but I realized like for me I love being in a state of calm hmm. I love I love being uh, tranquil and and feeling grounded. Happy is. I tell you what. I almost. I got almost got a parking ticket because I was happy. Literally, mm-hmm. I. It was Super Bowl Sunday, and me and my girl had just left the party, and uh, I had a drink. My girl had a lot of drinks, and Pharrell's song "Happy." Remember, you know, we remember like this was at the peak of happy, right? When yeah. the whole world, like, even if he was racist, he was singing a song. Everybody That's loved this song, right? And it comes on the radio. Me and my girl are, are singing. I mean, we, we're just having a party. I don't see the stop sign. I go straight through, and there was a cop parked right there at the corner. As soon as I went through that stop sign, whoop, pulls us over i know i'm going to jail because i got alcohol in me i'm i'm a black guy in a very wealthy white neighborhood in california mm. it's a wrap um my girlfriend is she was white my girlfriend now is white but that, that girl is white too and so the cop comes up to the car and he goes uh, do you know i pulled you over and i said yeah man i, I ran through the stop sign and he goes, uh, have you been drinking? I go, I haven't, but I go, she has. Cause my girl was so wasted. She made me look so sober. <laughs> right. She was slurring the words. Like she couldn't even sit up straight. Right. Uh, and I was like, so I'm you are des- like,
1: this is going to look bad. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So I go, I'm the designated driver. I was like, but this, you see this one over here. And he looked at, it, he was like, Oh wow. And, uh, and, and then, you know, he makes me do like the little eye test and he goes, why did you <laughs> go through the stop sign? I go, truthfully the song happy and it was still on i was like this song came on and we just kind of got really into it and i didn't I didn't see the stop sign and he looked at me and he's listening to the song and he had that look of recognition like oh yeah i i get that you know and he <laughs> let us go he did not give us a ticket that's hilarious look, nothing. he's like oh you should have just said you were playing pharrell in the beginning yeah absolutely and but then i, I looked up how many people get in a car accident over emotional driving they they're, they're, they get excited they get a phone call you got a raise you're having a baby uh getting married uh booked a trip got the job and then they get in a car accident because they get excited get happy or you know they lost a job they lost a baby it goes the opposite direction and then they get in an accident because they're they're emotionally distracted yeah. and so I, I just look at that for as life and not that I have, I don't want to be happy, but I'm not, I'm,
1: I'm no, not i get the that. difference. Yeah. I get the difference and, and look, and again, so maybe, maybe I should, we should, we should do a redefinition. Um, I think you hit on something important. That is a lot of us are looking for different things. So our, our, our outcomes are different, right? By the way, for some people, money is happiness. So that's, it's all good. Like I'm not even here to judge anybody. I'm just saying. So for me, for instance, my flow state where I really feel like I, I'm hitting it is when I'm in my purpose and I'm seeing the results. So, like, I get emails from people whose lives we've saved or whose families we've got back together or who we just rescued their self-esteem. And that really just, like, builds me up and really, really helps me feel like I'm, I'm here and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Um, I like fun in the, in that kind of sense of happy. but You know, I can I can do that for like four or five hours a week and I'm good. Um, The rest of the time for me, calm is not the right word. I'm not calm man. calm is not. um, I hear it in your voice. I hear it in your voice and I love it. The concept seems cool. I've never been calm in my life. So for me, it's being in action and being purposeful and feeling like what I'm doing matters is where I really hit my stride but I think what you meant is important for everybody listening, you know, your version of happy, your version of content, your version of, Hey, I'm in my zone is yours. And you, we all get to determine what that is for us. I love that. I've never been calm in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I When we go to the beach, my, my wife has figured this out now. Um, You know, my wife will go to the beach like we'll be in. We just had a trip this summer to Spain. We went to Barcelona, beautiful beach. My wife wants to lay out, put up, you know, put out a blanket, just kind of hang out for a couple hours, 15 minutes in. I'm like, so, uh, so what are we doing? What are we doing after this? Like I'm laying on, I'm laying on a blanket. That's what I'm doing. All right, uh, I'm going to take the kids in to the pool, to the water for a little bit, and then uh, maybe I'll, I'll go see what we're going to eat. She's like, oh, my God, you're driving me crazy. Get a book, do something. I have to be engaged in something. I can't. My mind just won't let me to date. My mind has not allowed me to simply sit somewhere. Then I have to be like, I have to be in action. I have to be meditating or something. It's kind of it's my it's, I'm not going to call it a cross to bear, but it's it's my reality. I'll say it that way i love that that
0: word engaged that's a, that's a word i just started using uh in the past year because mm. it, it to me it's there's a visceral response when you you can viscerally feel yourself engaged in your activity there's a the, the, like the, your body kind of lights up when you are in purpose and you are in flow and, and you're right meditation uh activity those types of things it 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 conjures up those emotions and I would I would imagine because I know you, you do a lot of work with epigenetics and and how uh, you know that helps to the, the link between epigenetics and trauma and addiction. Can you talk to us about mm. that?
1: Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think one of the ways in which this matters the most is in relieving people of the erroneous notion that your genetics, your biology, has predetermined um who you will be what your life will be like what your experience will be if you're depressed or anxious etc um and why am i saying that what do i mean we we just exited a time frame in humanity where really we were considered slaves to our biology right there's this stuff in your cells it's essentially your blueprint and just like a house has a blueprint you know this determines how the house will be built. So it creates you, and now this is it. This is what you got, like it or not. Tall, short, big, small, blue eyes, green eyes, blonde hair, black hair, smart, good at math, whatever. It's all locked in, right? That's the way we've looked at this for a while now. Um, and it's it made sense because that's just that's how we thought of it. Now, at the time while this was going on, we were weirded out by the fact that. You know, why are we 99.99% um, the same as chimpanzees and things of that nature? And what is all this empty stuff in our genetic code that doesn't seem to matter? In blueprints, you don't have like nothingness drawn, right? You have something drawn um, and and then, there, there, you know, there's blank areas of the paper where you're creating. And so we're trying to figure out, well, what's in the blank? What's, what's happening there? And what we've realized over time, And it makes sense, I'll explain it a step farther. Is Okay, well, yeah, your genes are there and they code the blueprint. But if you think about it for a second, the tip of your finger has the exact same genetic code as your eye, which has the exact same genetic code as any cell in your brain, which has the exact same genetic code as your heart, right? Same exact blueprint is in every single cell of your body. Well, why are they not all the same cells, right? You're not growing fingers out of your eyes. Why is that? Well, your body has a system in place to turn off and turn on the code that is relevant at any given point in time for any given environment. And your eye sits in a part of your body that when it was developing as your whole body developed was in an environment that had specific chemicals in it and specific signals from the physiological environment, your, your embryo was developing in that said, here, we develop an eye out of the cell. But as things got closer to your foot, it was like, here, we develop a toe and here's a fingernail and here's a nerve cell. Okay. That's all during development. Well, like it or not, the exact same thing happens later on when you're out in the world, your body is constantly being bombarded by information from your environment. Other people talking to you, smoke, light, dark um, news, anything, just anything that is informing your system, food, drinks, right? It's stuff from the outside that is coming in. It's the environment. Those signals change your genetic code. They don't change it by rewriting it. They change it by turning parts on and turning parts off. It's called methylation. That's the idea and demethylation. That's the idea behind epigenetics. So let's say, you have some genes that have been shown to be connected to making somebody hyperactive. So, like me not being calm always, right? If you are placed in an environment that is relatively stress free, if you're eating good food, you're exercising, you're supporting your body through environmental inputs in the best ways possible, some of the genes that have been shown to be harmful get kind of wrapped up literally chemically, they get wrapped up so that they don't get expressed. So your body doesn't read that genetic code. And by not reading that genetic code, it's literally the same as it not existing. So people know this because as you get stressed out, your body starts having more dysfunction, right? And, and part of that is because your body has having a harder and harder time epigenetically protecting itself from some of the more harmful elements that are present in your genes. And uh, it, it's having a harder time protecting itself from some of the environmental influences. And so you can leave that haphazardly to just happen as uh, as environmental influences change around you, or you can be very deliberate in doing it. Um, you know, if you're gonna get wanna get really woo-woo, you can talk about the China studies with the with the um, water crystals, right, forming around ice, but on a much more basic level um i'll I'll refer back to that song you mentioned that happy song right why do people like that song because it created feelings of contentment joy and happiness in them right and when the environmental does that make sense absolutely so like the environmental literal vibrations from the sound were in your body the words entered your ears and they were in your body what elevated was a feeling of being de-stressed, of being happy, of being excited, of being joyful. Have you ever listened to depressing heavy metal, industrial, um, even just melancholy music? It has an effect on you. It creates, it reverberates. It um, energizes your body into a very similar state, a, a level of vibration, which brings up and activates those states of mind in the same exact thing with stress. And so I hope, and I think we are, but I hope in this next iteration of, of the way we see ourselves, we, we start being able to give ourselves this flexibility. I am born with a blueprint, but what I do in my day-to-day really does matter. It changes the um, the experience that I will actually have in uh in using my blueprint because that is a really to me that's a very powerful understanding because once we get there you now have control right you stop being a slave to your genetic code and you get control over the experience you have here in life
0: so we have like 10 minutes left uh, because i know you got to wrap up uh yeah you said in an an hour and so when we're talking about trauma and addiction and and to 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 circle back to you you talked about the tools you were kind of given to 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 soothe and cope uh can we can we get into that and 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 what are some practical applicable things and how does
1: uh ignited uh assist people with that yeah 100 um So here's one of the things that I learned. I can hope that I will learn and have modeled in front of me the exercises, experiences and tools of how I want to become. What do I mean by that? I'll meet somebody who I will look up to and say, "Hey, I I like the way they parent. And then I will dive into it and understand more from it. Or I like the way this person runs their business or um, I appreciate the way this guy shows up to lunches when we eat with he and his wife, right? Let's say we have a couple's date or something. I can wait for that to happen, or I can be active and explore and look for the models, look for the people who I want to model, look for the tools that they use, etc. And so I really decided to go with the latter. Maybe it's because I'm in my 40s now, and I don't really want to wait another 15, 20 years to get it. I want to get it faster. So I'm now always very active. I I went and got my PhD at UCLA and studied a lot of this from other people who are really smart, right? What's a professor? Somebody who's gone through a lot of experiences, learned a lot, and now they impart that on their students. And you hang out with a lot of those people and a lot of other graduate students. You learn really incredible things. Well, that's great. That had to do with academia. Now around life skills, I really try to do the same. So I'm a big consumer of of audiobooks or books of any nature that I get to absorbed from. But the thing is that what I've realized, I have to be very open to the fact that I may learn a tool in one context and feel like it's not relevant to me and then practice it and see that there's actually huge benefits that I draw from it. In my life, what I've started doing is collecting these rituals for myself. So one of the things that started, and I'll get really practical, seven years ago, I believe, maybe eight, uh, my wife pretty much as a joke for Valentine's gave me a gratitude journal. Uh, It's called a five minute journal. Um, We use it a lot with our people. Now I used to wake up and go right to my phone and start checking emails and texts tip number one for everybody listening right now. Stop doing that tomorrow. Do not touch your phone. When you first wake up, Uh, I'll explain why shortly. It is essentially showing yourself and the world around you that you have complete disrespect for yourself. You appreciate what other people need endlessly more than what your needs are in a given moment. Why? While you've been asleep, the rest of the world has been operating. They've been sending you messages. You wake up and the first thing you go is to your phone. What you're saying is it doesn't matter what I need right now. Let me see what other people have been telling me they need for the last eight hours. Stop it. Get yourself to a good place first and then go check that stuff. So, I start out with a gratitude list. You don't have to do the five minute gratitude journal. Um, you can use anything you want. Take a piece of paper, write three things you're grateful for. The next piece is forward projecting. What do I want my day to look like? A lot of us want to have good days, but we've never really given a thought to. What would make today a good day? Well, think about that a little bit, write about it a little bit, figure out at the end of the day, how am I going to know if today went well? Last. Uh, A positive affirmation, if you're like me at all, then one of the things that ends up happening to you is that um, you end up thinking about all the ways in which you're inadequate, thinking about all the ways you're not enough, just like I did when I was a kid, Um, write some positive affirmations for yourself. We use that a lot. We make our ignited users do that every day. That's literally how I started a five minute practice. Then I would go to my phone seven, eight years ago. that, That was my daily practice. My morning practice is now about 90 minutes long. I wake up at 5.30 in the morning. I wake up the rest of the family at seven and I am full from the moment I wake up until then. It includes the gratitude stuff I just talked about. It includes movement. Um, It includes a very short amount of breath meditation while reciting my, uh, my self-affirmation. It now includes a little passage that I read to myself about the kind of father I want to be. Um, Sending my wife some gratitude about our relationship, a workout, a complete 30 minute uh, period where I go over my day and plan for the day and see what's coming up. And what do I need to bring to every part of my day? Looking at our company and what needs to be done within it, Um, 90 minutes every single day. And by the end of 90 minutes, what's cool about it is when I show up to the rest of my family, I'm on, I'm good and I don't have to wait and see what the day is like. I feel like I'm in control of the day, and my days are really, really consistent in terms of the energy, at least, that I get to bring to it. And so, to me, that is um, that is you know the most, the quickest, practical sort of advice that I can give people is start creating your own um, daily practice that is almost, um, almost immovable, right? Almost uh, irrelevant in terms of what else is happening in the world. This is something that you will do. This is something that you practice as close to daily as possible. Be open to what tools and what practices need to be in it, but be uh, very stringent on you needing a practice in order to get yourself where you want to get. And to me, that's been one of the biggest changes that I've ever had in my life.
0: Man, I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that Um, last question, because I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them? Hmm.
1: Before you kill yourself reach out to one person, somebody you already know, somebody you look up to, somebody you trust endlessly, or somebody you've never met before, and be transparent with them. Share what's actually going on for you in the moment. And if that doesn't help at all, then hopefully not, but maybe uh, keep moving on. But never, 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 do it before going through that single step.
0: love that. Reach out, connect, share your distress. Uh, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, Dr. Jaffe, where can people find you and connect with Ignited and, and plug all your things?
1: Absolutely. So Ignited is spelled I-G-N-T-D. We removed a couple of vowels, I-G-N-T-D, that's Ignited. So IGNTD.com is one of the easiest places. And then we started a website called just AdiJaffe.com, my first and last name. Feel free to connect with us over there. Um, And that should be equally as easy. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank
0: you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Be calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or any of the other millions of phone numbers listed in each and every single one of the show notes. they are international numbers. If you're in Sri Lanka, if you're in Poland or Israel, there are international suicide hotlines. Somebody who's willing to hear you, listen to you, sit with you in your pain. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Jaffe.
1: Thank you so much, Leo. Thanks for having this and thanks for everybody who's listening.